I've started most sermons in the last few weeks with movie references, or at least maybe the feeling you get in a movie. And this week is this Sunday won't be any different. Because I know that I have watched some movies and I'm wondering, when are we getting to the end? I'm just wondering, when's this thing going to end? And then there's a moment where things begin to turn and you know you're in the last battle scene or you're in the, the last major movement before the climax. I don't know if you can think of a movie where you're thinking that way. But if you can't, then this just falls short of an introduction. If you can, this is great because we have connected. But whatever the case, in the Gospel of Mark, this is that moment where things turn for the last time. From this point on, we head to the cross. And that's where we begin in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Three chapters left. This begins our last move to the cross. From here on out, there is nothing else but the move to the cross. Here we are, we're going to pick up chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were finally two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar, poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospels preach throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this. And promised to give him money. So we watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Again, the final, the final scene that moves us to the cross. This begins that, that long walk now in the next two days to the crucifixion. And Mark's going to build out the scene the way he's done so many other scenes in his gospel. He's going to lean into a pattern he has used to highlight truths along the way about the kingdom of God. He's going to lean in, in this passage, into a pattern of contrast. He's going to lay certain things up against one another so that they can highlight a particular truth about the kingdom of God and the work Jesus is going to do. And I want you to see how this has worked out up to this point. So we're just going to take a quick look at where we've already been. Just take a look at the, this pattern of contrast in Mark 8, 9, and 10. We saw this pattern uh, over and over again. Check it out. In chapter 8, we saw that Peter couldn't see Jesus, but then a blind man could see with faith. Interesting then, the pattern of contrast in chapter 9 was the disciples couldn't see, a child could see with humility. And in chapter 10, James and John, two of his disciples, they couldn't see, and again, Bartimaeus, a blind man, could see by faith. And you see in those three chapters, Mark lays out this pattern of contrast to say the people you expect to see, they actually are blind. But those that are blind or those that shouldn't see, they actually are the ones that do see by faith. 
And so Mark wants to put in front of us, the readers, that the kingdom of God is not always what you expect. Remember, Jesus will also say, the first will be last and the last will be first. Always backwards in the kingdom of God. Then, just a few weeks ago, we saw another pattern of contrast that highlighted a key truth about the kingdom of God. When we were in chapter 12, we saw that Mark laid out the story with two tricky questions. There were a a tricky question about taxes to Caesar, and and then there was this deeper truth being revealed. Then there was another tricky question about what marriage would be like in heaven, and then Jesus deals with another deeper truth. And that then contrasted with a sincere question. It was that question about what's the greatest command, and then Jesus gives the deepest truth. And Mark wants us, the reader, to to lean into that final scene, that final contrast where we pay attention to the greatest command. And he did it by laying out a pattern of contrast where you, you see the two trickies against the sincere. This is something Mark does throughout his gospel to give us eyes to see what's going on in the kingdom of God. Now, it's going to happen today as well. What he's going to do, he's going to lay out the pattern, this pattern of contrast, and this, this time he's going to lay out a structure that looks like a sandwich. Take a look. This is what it looks like if we just laid it out. In those first two verses, the chief priests and lawyers plot to kill Jesus. You saw that in those first two verses. And then in the middle, the contrast is an unnamed woman anointing Jesus. And then on the back side, the last contrast, the thing that contrasts with the middle, is Judas plotting to hand over Jesus. So on both ends, you have something that looks very different than the middle. Kind of like two pieces of bread that look different than the meat in the middle. Mark wants us to pay attention to what's happening in the middle. And that's what he highlights. And so we've got to look at what's going on there. What he highlights is that the person who you would expect the least to understand Jesus is the very one who understands what's going on. You have powerful people on both sides of the story. You have here chief priests full of power, and you have a disciple of Jesus who he at least he thinks he will have power in the kingdom of God. On both sides, you have pride and overconfidence, and in the middle you have humility. And who understands Jesus most? The one in the middle, the one most humble, the one you would never expect. Mark is highlighting a key truth that he has been developing all the way from chapter 1. I just want to summarize it this way. Here's the way we'd summarize this truth Mark wants us to see. For those that are weak and marginalized, they're the ones who receive the kingdom of God with humility. But those who are overconfident and powerful, they're the ones who cannot receive it because of pride. And so here, an unnamed woman sees Jesus clearly. Not only is she a woman, she's a woman with no name in the story, a woman of no significance up to this point, and yet her name, that is her story, will be told forever and ever as long as the good news is preached. Can you believe it? You would think the chief priest would get that kind of accolade. You would think maybe James and John would get it. An unnamed woman. It's the unexpected. Now, if we just took the first seven chapters of Mark, and we just looked at some examples of where we see the unexpected people seeing Jesus clearly, that is, the weak people receiving the kingdom, we'd see it all over the place. Just want to take a look. 
just the first seven chapters. We just want to see the pattern, this, this theme developing all the way from the beginning. Take a look. This is just some, example, uh, some examples. So in chapter one, we saw a man with leprosy. He said, you can make me clean. That's a guy on the outside of society, but he sees Jesus. A man healed of demon possession, you know what he does? He tells everyone about Jesus. Then in chapter, another example in chapter five is an unclean woman with chronic bleeding. She's the one that had great faith. And then a non-Jewish woman in chapter seven, she saw the global scope of God's kingdom and responded in faith. Over and over again, it's the humble and the unexpected who see Jesus for who he is. It is backwards. It is upside down from the way we think things should work. And that's the point. And here in chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, where we're launching into the final move to the crucifixion, Mark highlights this unnamed woman full of humility who sees Jesus for who he is. Now, what's interesting on this story is that Mark not only highlights humility as the key to the kingdom, he also highlights the one who is most humble. Why is that woman anointing Jesus? He says to prepare him for his burial. You see, Jesus will be the climax of humility on earth. You see, he's going to give his life away as the act of humility. And it will be the most unexpected thing that has ever happened in this world. God himself in flesh goes to a Roman cross to die. Who who becomes king by dying on a cross? That's not the way kings become kings. That's how people die, not become enthroned. But in the kingdom of God, everything gets turned upside down. And so here, Mark not only highlights the humility of the woman, he uses this woman, this unnamed woman, to highlight the one who is most humble and to highlight the thing that is most unexpected. It is to exalt Jesus and to tell us the most unexpected thing is coming. She is preparing for his burial, which is a signpost to the crucifixion that will come in just a couple days. Now we have, we knew this was coming. And over and over again, Mark is putting in front of the reader an account of the blindness of those disciples. Because Jesus says over and over again, I'm going to die. And over and over again, the disciples can't see it. And so now what I want to do is I just want you to feel, I just want you to feel the weight of the repetition of Jesus predicting his death. Because I imagine without seeing or feeling the weight of the repetition, we might just think, yeah, Jesus was going to die. But Mark has made sure to place that prediction along the way so that we, the readers, could see how blind everyone was until we finally get there. Now, there's going to be some application for us in this. But before we get there, I want you to feel how repetitive this is. Here we go. So what I mean is I'm going to read a lot of Scripture and you're going to feel bored. That's what I really mean, okay? All right. Mark chapter 2, verse 20, he's talking about fasting. And in that moment, Jesus tells his disciples, the time will come when the bridegroom, he is the bridegroom, Jesus is the bridegroom, will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. This is that first prediction we see in the gospel that Jesus will be going away. He won't be sitting on earth forever and ever on a throne. Let's go to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That's pretty clear. Let's go for another one. 
Then in chapter 9, verse 30 through 32, he told them, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And then chapter 10. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what, he was, going, what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him three days later. He will rise. Now, in every one of those passages, right after he makes the prediction, the disciples display their blindness. So, for example, in the first one, if you remember, Jesus says, I'm going to go die, and Peter takes him aside and says, no, you won't. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Those famous words, get behind me, Satan. You have the mind of earth, of things on earth, not the mind of things in heaven. Peter doesn't understand. And over and over again, particularly in that last one, right after Jesus says, we're going to die, James and John say, hey, can we sit on your right and left in the kingdom? They really don't understand what Jesus is saying. They really wanted to be great. And so this has a lot of application for us. All of that has something to say to us. Because even in the moment as the woman is breaking the jar and pouring perfume, preparing his body for burial, they think they see it as waste, and Jesus sees it as beautiful. And so the application for us is to be careful of blindness. So this is going to get real, this is going to get real concrete here in a second. So here's how I, I want to at least frame some application. How do we take all of that and get it on the ground into real life today? Just as the disciples struggled to see Jesus clearly, we too, we can too, like we can struggle too. We can be in danger of losing sight of the cross and forgetting the words of Jesus. So I just want you to be very clear. You and I have that same danger in front of us. Like we can look at the disciples and it feels really good. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it feels good to think you got a one-up on the disciples. Like, man, guys, you didn't see it. We see it. But we are also in that same danger of missing Jesus. And I want to just go to exactly the words we might miss. Here are the words we might forget over time. Here they are. These are the ones we don't like to read over and over. Then, this is, these are the words of Jesus. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see how quickly we can forget that not only was the cross the way to life for Jesus, it's also the way to life for us. It's not like Jesus cut a certain way to life just so that we can go have an easy, comfortable uh, life here on earth. The very way Jesus walked is the way he said we have to walk. And it does not take long to forget that. Now let's be clear. We do not forget or lose sight of the cross, that is, the cross is the way to life, that is, self-denial, that is, walking in humility as the way to life. We don't lose that perspective overnight. Like, you don't go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow and go and forget everything you learned about Jesus. The slide away from Jesus is slow. 
And it usually happens in little increments. So that one day, one day, all of a sudden, you don't even know him. Or at least you're not walking with him. You see, a, a move in the wrong direction for one day isn't a big deal. It's kind of like if you're driving and you start to go the wrong way. You know, you start to move in the wrong direction. You get a mile out, not too big a deal. You go 100 miles this way, over time you're far way away. And you're really off course. C.S. Lewis has a way of saying this that I love. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. And in one of his books called The Screwtape Letters, he imagines what it would be like if an older demon was teaching a younger demon how to tempt a new Christian. How do you get that new Christian to walk away from what the, the demons call the enemy? You know, the demons would see Jesus as the enemy. And so anytime you see enemy in the Screwtape Letters, you've got to think Jesus, the Father. You've got to think God. And so how do you do it? And the whole book, The Screwtape Letters, is a is basically a collection of letters written by the older demon to the younger demon on how to tempt that new Christian away from the enemy, from Jesus. And in letter 12, Screwtape, the older demon, says something quite insightful about how to get that new Christian away from the enemy. It speaks into our lesson, this passage today. Take a look. This is the end of letter 12. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are provided. Their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light, out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Isn't that the way it usually works? Now let me go, let me just hit on an easy target. One day we're going to really unpack why I think coming to church is important. But let me just take that as a target. It starts with not coming to church one Sunday. Then another Sunday. And then another Sunday. But then you come back. But then maybe four more Sundays. Maybe a couple months go by. But then you're back. Maybe three Sundays. Then you're back. Maybe four or five Sundays comes easy to sleep in on Sunday. Maybe the yard needs mowed. But you show up for Christmas, and you're on to your slide. And then Easter comes, you're there, then you slide, then Christmas. You miss Easter the next year, and you see that slowly you've moved away from that body of Christ. Now, the point isn't just to sit in a pew and hear a sermon and sing songs and take the Lord's Supper. Coming to the church building matters... Because your body matters in how you train for the kingdom of God. And when you come in person, you see people. And people encourage you. This is a way of exalting Jesus. Your presence matters. Now, I understand we're in COVID, so this is no judgment against not coming to the church building during COVID. But I hope you get the point that walking away from Jesus and losing sight of the cross is usually a slow slide. 
This is usually not something that happens quickly. And it happens so slow that you don't even know what's happening because you feel comfortable along the way. Now, the letter of Hebrews, when the, when the letter of Hebrews was written, this slow slide was happening for a lot of early Christians. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to do another, another, uh, um, uh, another reading of Scripture that goes back to back to back to back, because I want you to feel the weight of how repetitive the Hebrew writer was to tell those early Christians, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus. And this isn't something abstract. Like, just think about Jesus all the, all the time. It is literally keep Jesus in front of you because if you don't, you will slide and you will slide slowly and long until you no longer have him. Why don't you take a look? I want you to look at how repetitive the Hebrew writer is. This is all application. Like, this is something I could write to you. Here's what he says. Hebrews chapter 2, 1. So we must listen very carefully To the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. So and so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. Don't stop thinking about Jesus. You keep Jesus in front of you. It's easy to lose sight. Then Hebrews 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Don't you let go. It is easy to drift. Then Hebrews uh, chapter 10. Is that? Yeah. And so, dear brothers, brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Do not let go. You keep it in front of you. And then one of the best, one of the best passages coming out of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, and the Hebrew writer has just listed many of them in chapter 11, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily tra- uh, ties us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated at the right in, in the place of honor beside God's throne. Five times. And when something is repeated, it is important. Five times. This writer says, don't you lose sight of the cross. Don't you lose sight of the cross. Don't you lose sight of the cross. Because just like Screwtape understood, the best way to get you from the enemy, from Jesus, is the slow slide. So be very careful we don't lose sight of the cross. Because if we do, we'll miss the fact that humility... The cross is the way to life. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that application, those, those real ways that you and I might drift, and we're going to, make, we're going to put that uh, into place as a next step as something we can do this week with our bodies. This is a bit unique. We usually don't do something that is this tactile, this concrete in a next step. But man, I think this will work wonders if we'll do it. Take a look. This is our next step for the week. Look at or hold a physical cross 
and remember, oh, oh, remember the way of life is humility. And, I, and I, this isn't like a metaphor. This isn't figurative language. I mean literally get a cross in your hand or in your eyesight every day this week. And remember, it's the way of the cross that is life. It is not the way of pride. It's not the way of indulgence. It's not the way of being number one. It is giving your life for others. That is the way that you and I find life. And so use a cross to get you there this week. You might wear one around your your neck. So if, if you do, at some point, maybe set an alarm on your phone, like just hold the cross for like 30 seconds. And just remember, the way of the kingdom is the cross. It is not me getting everything I want. So that'd be a great reminder. Or if you don't have a cross, if for some reason you don't have a cross, like take a piece of paper, draw a cross, and put it in front of your face. Like that's a good way to do that. I actually thought, I, don't, I wonder where all my crosses are. I may just descend to drawing a cross on a sticky pad and just be like, I'm remembering today. Draw it on your hand. It doesn't matter. You look like you've got a tattoo on your palm. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you need to do to use your body to get a cross, a physical cross in front of you to remember the way to life is humility. And that will be one way that we follow the way of the Hebrew writer. We avoid the temptation in front of us that Screwtape talks about. And we remember that to be a disciple is to carry your cross. And there is life. There is life. That's good for all of us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for, again, the way Mark has put this together. We thank you that Jesus endured the cross to give life. Would you begin preparing our hearts as we move to the cross in the Gospel of Mark in the coming weeks? And would you be tearing away the sin that entangles us or the easy slide away from Jesus that feels so comfortable? We pray that you make that practical. You get it down into our homes. You get it into our workplace, right where we live in ordinary life. And we thank you for this. And we pray it in the name of him who went to the cross and came back to life, Jesus. And together we say, amen.